This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Finance Minister Carol James unveiled the province's public accounts and audited financial statements for the 1819 fiscal year yesterday, presenting a surplus of $1.5 billion, which was larger than expected. Economic growth, household growth, and income tax returns all performed more strongly than had been planned. James said uh, BC had eliminated operating debt for the first time in four decades while maintaining the country's lowest unemployment rate, currently at 4.7%, and nation-leading wage growth, which currently stands at 5.9%. Carol James also touting BC's 14.5% taxpayer-supported debt-to-GDP ratio, the third lowest in Canada. All of this boiling down to our question of the day. The hot question of the day for Friday is about the economic performance of the British Columbia NDP government, touting its record, posting this surplus of $1.5 billion, but storm clouds around ICBC, property transfer tax, and looming problems in the forestry sector remain on the horizon for the government. So the question is all about grades today. I know school's out for summer, but we, we're looking for some grades today. The old-fashioned, old-school A, B, C, D, or fail. <laughs> what do you think? Well, how would you grade the economic performance of the NDP government. Of course, any government at any level is going to be both uh, enhanced and hindered by circumstances beyond their control, meaning international uh, events, for example, like trade wars, that sprinkles down to provincial economies as well as federal. Uh, And again, so it's it's about managing what your game plan was going into taking over government combined with managing through whatever circumstances of the day get thrown at you, however unexpectedly. So given all of that and the fact that our government is toting, uh, touting quite a surplus and, of course, many would say on the backs of taxpayers, lots of new taxes since this government has taken office. So how would you grade their economic performance, A, B or C, D, or a flat old school F. You can vote on Twitter, at CKNW, or you can call the buzz line at 331-BUZZ, 604, of course, 331-BUZZ, 331-2899, and leave your vote there. Uh, Next half hour, we're going to speak to Kevin Milligan out at uh, the Economics Department at UBC. Uh, He's advised Department of Finance on tax measures in the past, so he'll be able to speak directly to all those new taxes that we have to deal with, and then we'll take some phone calls on this matter. So how would you grade the NDP's economic performance, the hot question of the day. And you can uh, do, uh, vote on Twitter at CKNW or call us on the buzz line 604-331-2899-331-BUZZ. Uh, one of the other uh, memorable markers that's uh, 50th anniversary this year is 
Woodstock. The plans, however, to mark the 50th anniversary of Woodstock have not been going so well. It's been more than a month since the team behind the Woodstock 50 Festival lost its original venue, which was Watkins Glen, the car racing uh, circuit. The team is searching meticulously for a new site for the highly anticipated Golden Jubilee Anniversary gig, but just last week applications for an alternative revenue, or venue, rather, were rejected by a township in New York State. So what's been going on? Well, let's check in with a guy who's been tracking this faithfully for a long time. He is John Barry, joining us on the line from Poughkeepsie, New York, where he is music writer for the Poughkeepsie Journal and the USA Today Network. John Barry, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, now, the problem with Woodstock 50, as I understand it, John, is that uh, they've, got, uh, they've got some kind of concert lineup. They've got a few acts uh, engaged with the idea of putting on a show uh, between August 16th and 18th. We know they have a date. But, John, the problem seems to be there's nowhere to put the show on. Tell us the story about the racetrack and the three attempts, well, that ultimately failed. Yeah, they have the dates. They have 70 acts all paid in full, contracts signed. They um, do not have government permits to stage this concert, and tickets have yet to go on sale. Uh, Their latest hurdles that they had to uh, cross uh, have to do with this town of about 10,000 people, a very small town in central New York, uh, in between Utica and Syracuse, the town of Vernon, and the plan is to have the concert at Vernon Downs, which is a, uh, has a casino, has a harness, a horse racing track, a hotel. Uh, but the town of Vernon, the, the codes people and the officials, uh, have told the Woodstock 50 people three times now that your plan, a, your plan was submitted too late Mm. and B, your plan is, uh, insufficient with enough information. Now, I was in Vernon in Tuesday night for a very contentious planning board meeting where they heard an appeal of this decision, and the planning board said, no, we're agreeing with our code enforcement people, and uh, you can't hold this concert here. So the meeting breaks up. The the room's just erupting, Mm -hmm. and I spoke to Michael Lang, who staged Woodstock in 1969, and he was saying, I'm obviously disappointed. We have to figure out where we're going to go from here. I turn to my left and I speak to Gregory Peck, who's another Woodstock 50 principal. Right. And he says, well, uh, we've just been told that we might be able to reapply. and We're going to have to figure out what our path forward is. They did, in fact, reapply. So this is, um, I guess, the fourth time. Uh, and so now, right now there is yet another application for a permit pending by Woodstock 50 before the town of Vernon, I spoke to the town attorney late yesterday, and he said uh, if he does not, he said if there's not a decision issued today, he anticip- anticipates a decision being issued no later than Monday, and that decision would either say you're still out of luck, or it would say show on and Woodstock 50, bring it on to Vernon August 16 through 18. Interesting stuff. Do they, you've heard the pitch several times. You've read the business plan. John, how many people were they expecting? What's the anticipated crowd size? Well, that's as with everything with Woodstock 50, it's not a simple answer. 
they started out with 150,000 uh, in early 2019. That's when it was going to be at Watkins Watkins Glen right. Racetrack. Yeah, uh, yeah. That uh, then got cut in half to 75 when the production people kind of started taking a look at things. They said you can't have 150,000 people. That is now down to 65 which is actually 60,000 fans and 5,000 employees. So right now, the targeted number is 65,000. And um, Vernon Downs Racetrack has in the past hosted Bruce Springsteen. Yes. Uh, they've hosted the Jam Band Fish. Um, so they've been down this road before. But the capacity, that's one of the sticking points with the locals and the local officials. There's no camping, so you have to get people in each day, and you got to get them out. It's a very rural area. There's a lot of farmland. Uh, there's, you know, lodging and all of that. People are going to have to drive to uh, campsites. So that's one thing I keep hearing. I, I spent three days in Vernon this week is, you know, what's going to happen with the people. Woodstock 50, through this entire process, earlier this year they lost their financial partner. Yeah. They've lost production partners, court cases. The Woodstock 50 people, Michael Lang among them, have never, ever, ever lost their confidence and almost defiant that this concert is going to go on. It sounds like it could devolve into a massive traffic jam were the, uh, the fourth attempt and the appeal to go forward. Uh, not a lot of time left here, John, but I'm curious about you've watched all of this from the sidelines. You've been in the rooms reporting on the beat for the Journal and USA Today. What's your take on the likelihood of this thing actually coming off. Well, we can't lose sight of the fact that in 1969, 50 years ago, almost to the very moment, to, to this week, uh, to this time we're in right now, Michael Wang lost his sight in Walk Hill, New York, in July 1969, with a month to go. He found Yasger's farm in one or two days and pivoted, and the rest is history. Right, right. So... You know, when I talked to Michael and I was, you know, talking to him in Vernon this week, he said, you know, we've been down this road before. And uh, one thing I will tell you about Michael Lang, I know him. I'm a former town of Woodstock resident myself. Um, this guy, he's a bottom of the, to use a baseball analogy, he is a bottom of the ninth, two out kind of guy. Mm. He, you know, he likes to pull that rabbit out of the hat. That's what he did in 1969. And he ended up staging an event for the ages. I mean, 50 years later, you say the word Woodstock and every head in the room will turn around. Sure, absolutely. Michael Lang likes, he likes the bottom of the ninth and he likes to pull that rabbit out of the hat. And uh, from everything I know about the guy and everything I've seen about the guy, and I have been working with him professionally for a good long time now, is uh, he just, he never quits. He never dies. And, you know, I have seen him pull rabbits out of his hat. So, uh, to use another baseball expression, it ain't over till it's over. Exactly. Here, you hit the nail on the head. John Barry, thanks for this. We'll keep our fingers crossed that you have something to report on for USA Today and the Poughkeepsie Journal in about a month's time. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. As John Barry in Poughkeepsie, New York. He's a believer. He still says this is going to happen. And, you know, he's not alone. A lot of people would like to see uh, some kind of commemorative event. The part that I was unaware of is the 70 bands, acts, performers, all signed, all prepaid.
The final day of Space Week here on the program, and as the world commemorates the anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing, it's being remembered as an achievement that pushed the limits of technology and broke the limits of our imagination. In reaching the moon 50 years ago tomorrow, NASA created a legacy of inspiration that's still being felt today. All this week, Global's Mike Armstrong has been looking at Canada's contribution to the moon landing, and today, well, a bit of a twist to Mike's reporting. Today's story looks instead at what Apollo 11 meant to the men and women who would become Canada's astronauts. My favorite thing. There was a fascination with space that grabbed Julie Payette early. The future astronaut was given a book on the moon landings when she was young. She still has it. There was also a poster on her bedroom door growing up, a collage of images from Apollo 11. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, Saturn V, and, and the moon landscape, and the service module, and everything. Payette says what Apollo 11 proves is that inspiration has no borders. Watching astronauts on the moon on TV, even as a little girl growing up in Montreal, she knew she wanted to go to space. The fact that they were American and I was Canadian, that they were guys and I was a girl, or that they spoke this language I barely understood at, at that age, English, uh, was not even something I thought about. Against those long odds, Payette would make two space shuttle trips. She'd also eventually have the chance to meet some of her idols, the Apollo 11 astronauts. She calls Neil Armstrong simply the best of the best. Oh, I think these guys had uh, way more courage than, than I would ever have. I, I was following in, into giant footsteps. Well, Chris Hadfield caught the exact same bug. That inspiration would take him to space three times, including a six-month stay on the International Space Station, a trip that would make him a global celebrity. That's one small step for man. And it all started with Neil Armstrong stepping on the moon. Hadfield was only nine years old, but his parents let him stay up late. I resolved, directly as a result of that hot July night in 1969, I resolved to try and turn myself into an astronaut. I just knew that I was going to grow up, and I was going to grow up to be something. I could grow up to be that. The man who would eventually be the first Canadian in space was a 20-year-old university student back in 1969. But that summer, Mark Garneau was sailing to Europe. July 20th, he was out on the water with a radio. We were in the channel, and it was about 3 in the morning when, they, when he stepped out onto the surface of the moon. I was looking at the moon and listening to it. I, I was seized with, uh, with uh, the momentousness of the, of the occasion. When Neil Armstrong passed away, you said that that accomplishment felt like it verged on the impossible. That's well put. I yeah. mean, it felt like it was impossible. It did. It did indeed. Uh, there were so many things that had to happen and happen right. Now, for people around the world, Apollo 11 changed the perception of what was possible. But as Chris Hadfield points out, for some, it changed the perception of what was possible for themselves. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Mike Armstrong, Global News, Ottawa.
Interesting stuff. Thank you, Mike. That's a great report. And, uh, you know, I was there during the summer of 69, and uh, I was actually paid to watch the moon landing. I was a university student at Laurentian University in northern Ontario in Sudbury, and uh, my I had an off-season job working for the university in the audiovisual department. Uh, strange that I would have chosen that. <laughs> it's still kind of in the same business. Uh, but I, I, as a student, I was making student wages, not a lot, but my assignment was to record the entire Apollo 11 mission for the astronomy department of the university. The recording material that we used, or the recording devices, were two-inch uh, recording tape made on uh, on a huge machine. And, of course, the tape reels would only last an hour-ish. And your job was to have the next reel ready uh, so that there was constant. You would never, there would never be a gap. You would start machine B and then replace the reels on A. So you were always recording. So this would necessitate a cot in the studio, an alarm clock, because, well, it was a lot. The footage was fabulous, but there were a lot of long moments of looking at space. <laughs> Not a lot of excitement there, and a person could fall asleep. And I did, more than once. So I had the trusty alarm clock, and I spent the entire uh, lunar mission uh, with the, uh, the Eagle landing and all. I recorded the whole thing for Laurentian University in Sudbury, Ontario. They still have it, and I guess they shared it with all of their colleagues, and it was great fun. Didn't make a lot of money, but what a great way... To experience that, never once during all of that, I guess because I was working and sleep-deprived, did it occur to me that I might want to become an astronaut. But I know, listening to Julie Payette and Chris Hatfield and Mark Garneau, among many other Canadian astronauts, that was... That was the tilter. That was the, the break point where they, at Garneau's case, nine years old, uh, Chris Hadfield, rather, at nine years old, basically saying, that's it. If he can do it, so can I. And at nine, it's a good time to make that decision. you got lots of career options, lots of education opportunities, and so off they went. So inspiration to so many people. Very few of us actually became astronauts. But during that summer of 69, my gosh, there were an awful lot of us who imagined ourselves becoming astronauts and just engaging. I suppose what we're, and we're going to talk about this a little later on too, uh, as we continue the Space Week coverage, the whole notion of inspiration. That's what 50 years ago this weekend did for so many of us. It just opened the doors wide to possibilities. Imagine if you can send basically a tin can with a real strong motor up to the moon, set people on it and bring them back home. If you can pull that off, what else? Is, what's next? And that was the stimulus that has kept a lot of people going for a very long time. Great reporting there from Global News' Mike Armstrong in Victoria or in uh, Ottawa as uh, we continue with Space Week here on the Simi Sarah Show. Claire Allen back in studio. And Claire, you and I were talking earlier about this. Today is a deadline for British Columbians, particularly those of us who have opinions on this whole business of daylight savings time or not. We've got until 4 o'clock this afternoon to take the survey. Yes. Tell us more. Yeah, so we have till 4 p.m. today. If you haven't shared your thoughts on uh, whether you would like the daylight saving, the tradition of either uh, falling back or springing forward mm -hmm. to continue in B.C., or if you'd like to stay on one time 
then you have till 4 p.m. today to share your thoughts on the future of time in BC. Okay, well, I am going to do this because I have not. Have you taken this survey? I have. Yes. Oh, you have. Well, as usual, you're light years <laughs> ahead of me. So, okay, I'm going to take the survey. And and so, do you believe BC should adopt year-round observance of daylight saving time? Yes is one box. Mm -hmm. The no answer goes on a little. It says, no, I think BC should continue our current practice of springing forward into daylight saving time in the summer and falling back to standard time in the winter. So those are your two options. Uh, So I'm going to go with, uh, do you think we should adopt year-round? I'm going to go yes. This is my my opinion here. So which? why do you prefer observing daylight saving time year-round? So then it gives me many options and and a check all that apply. Unlike most government services or surveys, if you check more than one box, eh, you're out. Yeah, exactly. Th- this one, you get to stick around in SO3, though the the hours of daylight benefit me. Mm-hmm. It says professionally, economically, no, I just like longer daylight anytime I can get it. Additional daylight during the evening commute. Now, that yes. matters to a lot of people. You know, it's really depressing in the dead of winter. You go to work in the dark. In the dark. Yeah. And you come home in the dark. I completely agree. <laughs> oh, man. That's, what am I? working for anyway (laughs) a little sunlight would really help safety reasons other than road safety health or wellness reasons some people have seasonal affected disorder and uh, that uh, gets to them extra sunlight does help environmental protection reasons so so i'm going to go with those two how important do you you don't mind helping me with my survey since you're a veteran of taking the survey so how important do you think it is for bc to be aligned with neighboring provinces territories or states and this was part of your thing this morning claire Mm -hmm. Uh, the whole west coast of north america is leaning in this direction yes they're looking at staying on Pacific daylight time, so leaning towards the daylight saving time. But I mean, we're not sure because uh, in the in the United States they have to get approval from Congress. So we'll see what happens. But if we all line up, then we would all be on the coast of the West Coast. We'd all be on one time zone. So California, Oregon, and Washington are already quite heavily leaning in this direction. Mm-hmm. So the fact that British Columbia may also be, and we don't know the results yet, would, would certainly line up for a, at least a coastal thing. Yeah. And unlike the Yanks, we don't need to presidential approval. We no. can We can do this by ourselves. Yeah, we could either the it could either go to the floor of the legislature or the premier could just uh, do somehow iron it out themselves. So how important do we think it is for us to be aligned with our neighbors? I'm going to choose very important. What if we They're get the that, neighbors. Uh, that's if, right. What if we get that high-speed rail? Uh, that's right. Yes. Imagine, Imagine the scheduling. Imagine if we are just an hour behind or something. And all, the, all those billions for being an hour out of whack. <laughs> exactly. I don't think so. Now, final question, friends. Washington, Oregon, and California are considering year-round observance of daylight saving time. If these states implement the changes, do you believe BC should? And there are two options. Decide independently what time observance is best for BC, even if this means we're not in the same time as the Yukon, Washington, Oregon, or California. That's one option. Or you can change as required to align with Washington, Oregon, California, and the Yukon and how they observe. I'm going to click that one because you and I have just decided that's kind of an important thing to be part of the West Coast of North America time gang. It'd be weird to be the odd man out there. It really would. It wouldn't wouldn't benefit us economically in, in any way. So I go, next? Um, you mean I'm not done yet? Holy cow. <laughs> What's your gender? Well, I know what that is. Uh, how do I, do I identify as in? No, I don't. Uh, which region do you live in? Uh, lower mainland. Which age category? None of your flipping business. Uh, what's your role or occupation? Oh, gosh, I don't think they have uh, what we do uh, on their list. <laughs> well, as, as you're seeing right now, I mean, the survey, it, it, it doesn't take too long. It takes no. about five minutes. That's right. And it's uh, a government survey. So if you're looking to participate, you 
you have until 4 p.m. today. The simplest way to find it is to Google BC Daylight Saving Time Survey. Um, it is very quick, as we just heard Sterling go through all the questions. That's it. And what was really interesting is a week after this survey was launched, they had over 158,000 responses. So the survey was launched on June 26th. Yes. So they had a Within ton, a week. Yeah, within a week, which... Uh, Premier Horgan said it was unprecedented for the amount of uh, feed. The feedback was just huge. He was has not seen that sort of feedback on any other um, survey within just a week of it launching. Um, so I was kind of today we've we've been talking about it because today's the deadline. That's right. And I've always wondered because I complain twice a year about the clocks changing. I'm so tired all the time whenever it happens. You know, on Sunday you're like, oh, this is fine, but then Monday rolls around and you're just feeling like you're climbing out of a grave. And it's you just... talk to people like Kim Larson, our traffic guy who's on duty right now, and he will tell you, because he's been at this a long time. I know him quite well. And there's a lot of evidence to submit on the day that the time change occurs, the morning after, mm-hmm. that Monday morning, the spike in traffic accidents is quite discernible. It's a pattern that is as predictable as the sun coming up tomorrow. Yeah, so there's a really popular cited study relating to traffic incidents, uh, accidents and their link to daylight saving times. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1996, and they used data from 1991 to 1992 that suggested that traffic incidents rose by 8% yeah. on the Monday after the clock turned forward and fell by roughly the same amount on the Monday after following the switch back. Sure. So you're right, there are there are a lot of uh, there's a lot of evidence to support the, that uh, that theory. So, what was interesting? I was wondering, why do we even do this? What, mm-hmm. What's the reason? And so, so the, what's the history? It, well, it has something to do with agriculture. There's a, some, an agricultural uh, aspect, but there also is an aspect that after World War One in 1918, they simply did it to preserve coal. So oh. There's a lot of reasons. So I looked online. There's tons of reasons all over the world about why we we fall uh, fall back or spring forward. Interesting yeah. stuff. And so now, uh, whatever the original reasons were, and there are probably a stack of different reasons that have contributed to maintaining the tradition, mm-hmm. but there's no apparent reason that we need to do it come this fall again. So now we're taking matters into our own hands. Exactly. And so Linda Larson, she's a liberal MLA, and she had previously introduced three private members' bills about this issue of switching the clocks in BC. And she spoke to CKNW about why she has been so passionate about this issue. I started out just representing my uh, people in, in Grand Forks, but as I got further into this, I received, as you can imagine, a immeasurable amount of uh, emails, phone calls, texts, etc., of people that really did want to see the switching stop. So it kind of gained its own momentum uh, as it went along. And I, I am I'm a mother, a grandmother. I know what children go through every time we switch the clocks, and um, I just thought, after 102 years, it was probably time to quit that. So yeah, time to quit. Time to quit. Time to make up our mind. Which one are we going to stay? Which times? What time are we going to stay on here in BC? And when uh, Linda Larson was asked which time she would prefer, she said there's a clear winner in her mind. Well, there's science on both sides, but from the perspective of just the public. Um, uh, what would prefer from all of the um, information I've had over the last couple of years that it be the daylight savings time. 
So like you said, having more sunlight. That's right. We talked about this a couple of hours mm-hmm. ago, and that, that's been my preference all along. Yes. A, ditch the spring ahead, fall back, all that stuff. Yeah. And B, you have to go to one or the other. Yes. I would go to permanent daylight savings time. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly. uh, Linda's option as well. So we're going to open up the phone lines in a couple of minutes and, and, and I guess ask people what, there are two questions here, really, Claire. Yeah. And again, we just took the survey. So it, it's, not a, it's not a brain buster of a survey. <laughs> friends, and you've got till four o'clock. If you want to ring in and have your opinion counted, the uh, website is, is uh, uh, I'll give you the website in a minute. Uh, but anyway, you can go to, to BC uh, Time Survey yeah, and it'll Google, pop right up. Exactly. Google BC Daylight Saving Time Survey. That's the easiest way because yep. it is a government link and it's kind of long. So that's the easiest way. And as you, as we heard, Sterling did it. it took like, what, five minutes? Uh, if. Yeah, if. exactly. And so, I was talking what I was doing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's, it's a really simple way to have your say on this issue. And I would love to know what our listeners think. I'd love to hear if they've taken the survey Mm -hmm. and if they think that we should stay on one time or if they like what we're doing, if they enjoy, you know, falling back and springing forward. Maybe they like being tired. I don't know. (laughs) Linda said it's been a tradition for 102 years, and some people are traditionally minded, Mm -hmm. and it's A-OK by them to spring ahead and fall back, and what's your problem? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So what's the problem here? A lot of people are going, this is a lot about nothing. But it is an opportunity, should we decide collectively, to change things by ourselves. And if we see the uh, West Coast, the states on the West Coast of the U.S., if they decide to pick one time, time, to stay on, should we follow suit or should we just do our own thing? Mm -hmm. All right. Well, lots of questions on the table. Now it's your turn. Over to you. 604-280-9898. The lines are wide open. It's daylight savings time. And I think I can't promise or guarantee, but I think it's going to be perhaps the last daylight savings conversation we're going to have on the open line until the survey results get published. And all they're saying about that, Claire, is later this year. They're being a little vague about when we're going to know the numbers. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, August is coming up. People want to go on vacation. That's Nobody right. wants to be sitting there counting out the votes. But I think it should be a very simple process, and I hope we don't have to wait too long to find out what people have said. Time to take a look at some reparations, as the government of Canada has decided, and it was announced yesterday, to uh, reimburse members, uh, former members of the military and some of their former civilian employees for sexual assault complaints. And uh, this is part of the pattern of the government of Canada under just. Justin Trudeau, uh, the apology reparation file. And here to take a look at yesterday's announcement is Amanda Connolly, Global News political reporter, joining us from Ottawa. Amanda, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Now, it's great to have you with us, Amanda. You're right there at the scene of the crime. So let's talk a little bit, first of all, about the details announced yesterday with respect to the military, the settlement, please. Yeah, so this settlement is a deal worth roughly $900 million here to effectively compensate the plaintiffs as well as potentially tens of thousands of others uh, resulting from a class action lawsuit that was filed back in 2016 alleging sexual misconduct that was rampant within the Canadian forces. Mm -hmm. And so of that $900 million, we're looking really at an $800 million cap on settlements for individuals who are uh, victims who actually worked in the military who are part of the Canadian forces and a $100 million cap on settlements for civilians who also worked affiliated with the military. And so what that boils down to potentially per per person is that for individuals in the military who submit claims and are found to be eligible for this settlement money, they could receive between $5,000 and $55,000, potentially also going up to $155,000 in the most egregious Mm -hmm. cases here. 
So now the, uh, the the class action lawsuit that began all of this. So is the settlement and uh, the dollar figures notwithstanding, is the settlement based on the outcome of that class action lawsuit? In other words, the courts ordered this or was it negotiated? No. So what we're getting so far is that this appears to be a negotiated settlement okay. uh, resulting from those class action, the, the class action lawsuits that were brought in in this case here. And of course, there were a number of individuals who over the past couple of years have been coming forward, telling their stories and saying that they face um, a, a variety of different cases of sexual misconduct while serving their time in the military or working adjacent to the military as well. And so what we're really seeing here, I think, is a result of those lawsuits, uh, the individuals coming forward from that but also part of this kind of broader conversation that's been going on in recent years, really since about 2015, when, of course, uh, former Supreme Court Justice Marie Deschamps came out with her landmark report saying that there was effectively an underlying sexualized culture in the military that was hostile to women and LGBT members. Right. Now, and that, it's that culture point that you just made, Amanda, that I'd like to pick on, uh, pick up on for a second. But it, it, it needs another question answered before I can get to it. And that's the nature of the settlement with the RCMP, the paramilitary RCMP, also in the hundreds of millions of dollars, also quite recently, yes? Yeah, so they had uh, two $100 million settlements. So both separate, both worth roughly, again, $100 million dollars. Uh, resulting from class action lawsuits with members uh, who had alleged they, they faced sexual discrimination and harassment during their time in the force as well. And so, again, that was really a case that put a lot of eyeballs on a force uh, that in, in, uh, in a lot of cases is, is, has been accused of kind of similar institutional cultures that have not been treating uh, women and, and LGBT members particularly well, and in a lot of cases have been treating them very, very poorly. And again, that was a case that was settled. Uh, both, both of those cases were settled, and we saw quite a bit of money go toward that settlement to victims. And, and we're, what we're hearing so far is that this settlement with, uh, resulting from the military here will, will be significantly more individuals involved than the ones who were involved with the RCMP for right. that $100 million. Sure. Okay, but let's, take, let's do the numbers for a second. $900 million in this military-negotiated settlement, $200 million with the RCMP and their former members. That's $1.1 billion. So they, they talk about uh, they, both the, the military and the RCMP talk about the need for a cultural change within the organizations. Now we've, we've seen reparations to uh, the tune of $1.1 billion. How effective might that be in leveraging even a modest cultural change in either or both of those organizations. It's pretty entrenched, Amanda. That really is a big question right now. And of course, we've been looking at uh, the, the military for a number of years, and I'll use them just because they're, they're sure. a, an example that we have some, some very, very firm data to back up on. Um, Statistics Canada, once this Deschamps report came out in 2015, looking at the culture of the military, um, Statistics Canada started doing surveys actually looking at how widespread is this problem. And what we've been getting so far over the last two reports from that is that it really hasn't changed, even despite the fact that the military has launched what they call Operation Honor, really intended to um, eradicate and stamp out sexual misconduct within the ranks mm-hmm. and we are we continue to see individuals coming forward with these stories again even as the military has changed their process for filing complaints to try and make it more more friendly for people to come forward um that there 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 seems to again be be very real and concrete challenges to fully eradicating a lot of this behavior 
Interesting stuff. Now, since we're talking in the military, one of the most recent military uh, issues that has arisen is the, the case of uh, Rear Admiral uh, Mark Norman, who has uh, announced his departure from the military and who received a settlement. Uh, we don't know the answer, or do we, reporter in Ottawa, Amanda? We do not know the amount of that settlement at this time. Uh, we know very little about actually the, the terms of that uh, that agreement, along with most of the details of the case, it continues to be one of the, the kind of big questions here in Ottawa. Is, mm-hmm. um, when will we find that out and how much could be involved in that? Again, you're looking at an individual who is the second in command of the military who ended up retiring after the, cr- the Crown stated its case of breach of trust against him earlier this year. And so, again, you're looking at a number of different cases here where the government has reached settlements, um, both for amounts that we, we know are in the millions of dollars with, um, again, some of the cases that you've mentioned, um, and a number of ones where we don't, we don't know the amount that's involved. Interesting. Final question to you, Amanda, and we're grateful for your time this afternoon. It's an election year. October 19th is the big day. Uh, is there, uh, I sense it on our phone line sometimes when the conversation uh, heads in this direction. Do you detect in the nation's capital any measurable degree of fatigue among taxpayers and voters with regards to these? Not that the, the, the matter of the settlement and the deserving nature of them notwithstanding. That's, that's, that's not the question. The question is, do you detect, uh, shall we say, reparation fatigue at all? I don't know if I would necessarily see reparation fatigue specifically. I think that there is certainly, um, you could call it disenchantment with yeah. the government. The polls have certainly suggested that uh, that amount. We can look at some of the recent ones uh, to, to, to point to the fact that people are, are not indicating support for the government in the levels that they used to. And I think that we're really going to see that come to a head, of course, over the next three months here as we head into the campaign uh, on in, in the middle of October. You're right. Uh, and that will be the, the big question for voters here is, is are they uh, tired and are they looking for a change and are they satisfied with the record that Justin Trudeau and the Liberals have to show to them? Interesting stuff. Amanda, thanks very much for this. It's a, a revealing conversation. We appreciate the information, no matter how happy we may or may not be with this, what's going on. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. It's absolutely critical to know what the, what the story is, and we appreciate your time. Thank you. There's Amanda Connolly, who is a political reporter with Global News based in Ottawa. Well, we've talked about uh, a lot of the activities planned for this particular weekend in Vancouver. Of course, the fireworks begin next weekend. But we've got, of course, the Vancouver Folk Music Festival at Jericho Beach. All sorts of activities planned. And maybe some of us aren't going to spend a lot of time being in organized events. We're going to find a quiet spot and do some fishing. Uh, If we're allowed... What's the story with the red stuff in the waters? Is this some kind of algae bloom? I've seen that uh, written up a few times. And then I'm starting to hear about red tide. So uh, red tide, we know, means no shellfish. So is this an algae bloom and we can continue fishing and eating what we catch? What's the story? So for answers, we go to the Department of Fisheries and Oceans Canada and Ian Perry, who joins us from his lab in Nanaimo. Ian, good afternoon. 
Good afternoon, Sterling. It's great to have you with us. So what's the story on the red stuff, Mr. Perry, please? Well, it's, it's, uh, it is an algal bloom. Um, some types of algal blooms get to also to be called red tides, and you are correct. They, they can cause uh, problems with shellfish. But this is a different kind of small plant. Uh, we call them phytoplankton living in the ocean. And phytoplankton are actually they're the base of the food web. So without phytoplankton, there's no fish. Sometimes in the summertime, we have uh, just the right conditions of sunlight and enough nutrients uh, that we get these huge blooms. And this one is, it, it is pretty spectacular. The red color is really quite striking, mm-hmm. and it's hung around for uh, oh, a week or, or more. So, But it is a completely natural event. We had one of these at about the same time last year, um, and it's uh, not harmful to people. So benign is the operative word. So if we did have a plan to sit out there on the chuck and bounce around for a few hours with a line or two in the water, we can eat what we catch. Uh, certainly for fish, yes. Uh, if someone wanted to go uh, shellfish harvesting along the beaches, the the area around Vancouver, Howe Sound, is currently all closed to uh-huh. shellfish harvesting. But okay. That's that's not because of this particular bloom. It's because of um, other uh, other uh, phytoplankton, other little plants that concur at the same time. Interesting. So let's uh, separate that out. I'm glad to have this conversation, especially on a Friday heading to the weekend, Ian, because a lot of folks are just going to go to the beach and hang out for as long as they can stand the sun. So let's talk about uh, the the red and, and the fact that uh, we can uh, we can swim in it. Yes. Yes, swim in it. I, I, I wouldn't particularly want to swallow it, but then I'd be swallowing a lot of salt water with it. That's true, of course, yeah. Yeah, so um, this is a, a particularly interesting one. It's um, a very small plant uh, called that we call heterosigma. Um, it's, uh, it actually can cause damage and can kill fish if the fish can't get away from it. So mm. it can be a particular problem for fish farms. It uh, gets in under the gills and uh, secretes a, a chemical that actually can cause the fish to suffocate. Hmm. For r- wild fish, they can swim away from sure. it, so it's not really a problem for them. But, in fact, the fish farms, when they, they monitor for this kind of an event, and it's pretty common this time of the year. When they see this coming, they will do um, things like bubbling the water to try and disperse the bloom away from their their net pens because it can be a problem for farmed fish. Interesting stuff. So now back to what we can and can't eat. And it's important that you're pointing out that the current red stuff that is so noticeable uh, and yet is benign is not responsible for a ban on shellfish here in the lower coastal zone, correct? That's correct. Yeah, one of my colleagues actually had a, a nice little phrase that I think is worth is, that is worth repeating. And she said that uh, it's not often what you see that's the problem in terms of shellfish harvesting. It's what you can't see. And um, along with these kinds of red blooms that are quite obvious, other species can bloom as well. Other species are little little plants um, that aren't as visible, and they tend to be the ones that can cause problems for the shellfish. So what I recommend when I'm speaking with uh, people like yourself and my neighbors um, is that if you plan to go out doing some shellfish harvesting, you should always check the most recent notices on the DFO website or even on the beach that you plan to go harvesting. Okay, and uh, I would assume that uh, updating is a big part of uh, maintenance on the website, especially heading into an active summer weekend. So the current ratings for edibility or not will be uh, on, on the DFO website. Absolutely, yes. In fact, I, I just, uh, just uh, this morning checked, and the last update was yesterday. 
uh, and it maintains the closure in Vancouver Harbor. I, I might actually add that the way this, this kind of closure business works is uh, a collaboration between ourselves, Fisheries Notions, and the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. Okay. They're the actual ones who uh, gather up mussels. They collect mussels from the beaches and the rocks, and they analyze them for the particular algal toxins. And if the toxins are above a, a certain threshold level that's deemed to be a problem for people, um, then they contact us, and we are the ones uh, who close the beaches because we have the fisheries officers that go around and post the notices and that sort of thing. Interesting. So, once a beach is closed, it takes uh, one or two weeks or one or two uh, subsequent samples um, that are below the threshold level for that beach to be reopened again. Okay. Uh, final question to you, Ian Perry. Uh, are there any creatures that show up unexpectedly when these blooms occur in our waters, just from an observational point of view? That's a, that's a good question. Um, these being completely natural, uh, we see them actually at all times of the year. They just tend to be a little more frequent when the water's warmer and a little more um, uh, common in the summertime when people are out and about. So they're part of the regular ecosystem that we see. Um, so the animals that will eat them will be small um, animals like zooplankton in the water. So eventually it will dis- dissipate, but it's, um, it is a completely natural and normal event at this time of the year. Interesting stuff. Very informative conversation. Thank you for your time, Ian Perry. A, a bit of a relief, at least knowing what to expect heading into the weekend. Absolutely. My pleasure, and thank you for your interest. Uh, Entirely. Ian Perry joining us from DFO in Nanaimo. I have just come back uh, from a vacation in Ontario, where I spent a couple of weeks uh, getting to know some brand new, very small family members, and uh, enjoying a swim in a lake and, uh, well, fighting off the mosquitoes. The usual Ontario experience. But during my time there, listening to the radio, reading the papers, I came to understand that there's a different strategy at play with the election coming up this fall. It appears at least from my observations, that Justin Trudeau has decided to run basically against Doug Ford rather than Andrew Scheer when it comes to try to win seats in Ontario, particularly vote-rich Toronto and the greater Toronto area. Here to, well, either refute my analysis or, or back me up, hopefully a little bit, as political communications consultant Jerry Nichols from the Hill Times and Power Play and all of those shows. Uh, and he's back with us on the program today from Oak. Oakville, Ontario. Jerry, Jerry, hello. Hi, Sterling. How you doing? Well, I'm fine, thanks. I'm sorry I didn't call on you when I was in Ontario, but the family had me just tied up for pretty much the whole time I was there. But I did get to listen to the radio and read a few uh, paper uh, columns and so on. And uh, am I barking into the wind here, or have I pretty much nailed it's going to be Trudeau versus the very unpopular Doug Ford in place of Andrew Scheer this fall? Yeah, I think, Sterling, that's a, that's a fair assessment. Uh, we have to keep in mind um, what the Liberals are doing from, in terms of their strategic perspective. Um, they're dealing with Andrew Scheer right now, and I think their best hope of winning is to kind of demonize him. Mm-hmm. Right now, Trudeau isn't all that popular, so their message is going to be, hey, I know you don't like me, but Scheer's even worse. Um, the problem with doing that, however, is that you know, Scheer is such an innocuous figure. And he's kind of boring and bland. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, kind of hard to you know, say he's evil. And plus, he doesn't really have much of a policy uh, trail to sort of go after. Um, so, they're, so they're going after a proxy instead. Um, now, originally, of course, their, their plan was to link Andrew Scheer with Stephen Harper. Right. Then they kind of changed that to say, no, no, uh, Scheer's more like Donald Trump. Now they're saying, oh, he's, he's like Doug Ford. He's, he's friends with Doug Ford. 
And I, 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 I think the reason for that, I mean, it's pretty obvious. Uh, you said that Doug Ford's unpopular right now. Right. Uh, and so they're trying to do whatever they can to link Shear with Ford, knowing that most people can't distinguish between the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario and the federal Conservative Party. You know, conservative is a conservative is a conservative. Sure. So that, that, I think, is basically going to be their strategy going forward. Unless somebody else pops up to be unpopular, then maybe they'll go after them as well. But right now, it looks like Ford's going to be the evil guy that the liberals are going to kind of, kind of highlight in their strategy. It, it still strikes a lot of us here out west as being uh, different and kind of odd. So I think it's important, Jerry, that you let our Vancouver listeners know exactly how unpopular Doug Ford is. He's doing all the ugly stuff that smart political leaders do in their first years of their four-year terms in the hopes that by the time the election rolls around a few years later, the folks have forgotten about the ugly stuff or maybe, maybe just maybe, some of it actually made sense. Either way, the ugly stuff, he's right in the middle of getting that done and his numbers are not very healthy at all, correct? Well, yeah, he, he, he's not doing that great. I don't think he's doing as badly as a lot of people in the media are making out. Um, but he's certainly not doing, he's not doing extremely well right now in the polls. And I think the problem for Ford, uh, to a large degree, is his own communications problem. Sure. Uh, you know, he, he, he did some cutting uh, of spending, uh, but he kind of did a death of a thousand cuts. In other words, instead of sort of announcing everything at once, uh, he kind of, one week there'd be one announcement, and the next week there'd be another announcement. So it gave the media and his opponents a lot of time to kind of circle their wagons around each one of those things and make a big deal about them. And people never like to see government services cut. You know, they might not like the deficit, they might like debt, but they still don't, they don't like to see their, you know, you know what they depend on or, or, or government services they like. They don't want to see them curtailed. Sure. So that's always going to be a problem for Ford. And I think more than that, Ford has displayed a certain incompetence. Um, in terms of explaining what he's doing, in terms of defending his budget. And also there's a lot of, you know, sort of scandalous things involving his chief of staff and, you know, and sort of... Um, cronyism you know, issues. Cron- yeah, I was looking for the word. Thank you, Sterling. Uh, cronyism. Uh, his, his chief of staff, uh, Dean French, had to, re- had to quit. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of bad headlines about that. So I think, I think, you know, in a way, Doug Ford's government is kind of a mess for a lot of reasons. Um, and it's sort of, it, it's, it's sort of you know, hemorrhaging into the Conservative Party right now. I, I, you know, is this a terrible thing for Shira? Uh, maybe it's, it's not great, but I don't think it's, it's something he can overcome if he has a proper strategy. Interesting. Now, let's zoom in for a moment on Mr. Shear because you just mentioned a few minutes ago uh, uh, he really doesn't have a lot of baggage. People don't associate him uh, or, or automatically think of him as a, an evildoer and, oh gosh, you give him the prime minister's chair and the country's going to go to hell in a handbasket, all that sort of stuff. He doesn't strike, I don't think, many people as being that sort of individual. If anything, I think he strikes most people as so who is this guy? What does he stand for? I haven't seen Andrew Shear ever get angry, uh, and not that I want him foaming at the mouth, Jerry, but, you know, a, a, little, um, a little emotion can travel a long way with people who are looking for someone to stand up for what they believe in. Uh, Andrew Shear is basically the uh, Pillsbury Doughboy of Canadian politics. <laughs> yes, okay, I'm not going to argue that one. <laughs> okay. uh, you know, he's, you know, he's harmless. And, and, and he's adorable. Um, and, 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 he, and his initial strategy after becoming a leader was to kind of promote the fact or highlight the fact that he was just an average, everyday, middle-class dad. Yep. Right? That, that's, that's kind of his thing. 
which never struck me as being a very effective strategy because I think the average Canadian wants a leader, right? They don't want, to, they don't want the guy next door running the country. Mm-hmm. They, want, they want somebody who's got something different, who's like, who has sort of an aura and a presence. They want that guy to be leader. So I think right off the gate, uh, Scheer sort of made a strategic error in terms of his communication. And ever since then, what's really struck me about him is, is, is that he's timid. He's passive. I, I call him an arch-cautionist. Um, he, he, he doesn't really go out. You don't really see him doing any kind of bold moves or measures. You don't really get, see him going out there and you know, you know, you know, proudly declaring what he stands for, what his vision is. Uh, you don't really know what he stands for, other than the fact that he doesn't like Justin Trudeau, right? Or that he wants to replace Justin Trudeau. He's I get more the, competent than Justin. Trudeau. I get the impression, Jerry, that he is so uptight about offending anyone, he'd prefer not to say anything. Well, my sense right now is, and I think this has been sort of reinforced by the fact that he's been sort of, you know, heading up in the polls lately, is that he, he he's playing he's playing instead of playing to win, he's playing not to lose. Yeah. And not not very compelling, is it? Right. It's it's very defensive, um, and the problem with that is you cede the initiative to your opponent, and that's what's happening right now. Well, he's being Mister Nice Guy and trying not to make any mistakes, and you know, sort of apologizing anytime anybody goes off the rails anywhere. Uh, Trudeau's going after him with a rusty axe, right? Um, and you know, sooner or later, uh, I think Andrew Shear's going to have to fight back, and he's going to have to brawl. Um, the question is. Uh, can he do it? Can the people who, who surround him do it? I don't know. We'll see. I spent some time in the city of Toronto and then up in Cottage Country North and, and did a lot of just sort of asking people, well, what do you think about this? Just sort of testing the waters. And a lot of younger people that I spoke to are, some of them are still on side with Justin. He's my guy. But a lot of them, surprisingly, um, not as enthralled as they were five years ago when they gave him his majority. And some of them so disenchanted, Jerry, as to be considering, openly considering voting green. Are you hearing any of that, particularly among the large number of young voters that showed up in many cases for the first time last time around? Well, Sterling, I'm, I'm a really old person, so I don't really <laughs> hang around with young people too much. Um, but what I'm seeing in the polls is that the Green Party seems to be growing. And then what I'm hearing from pollsters is that the Liberal Party is hemorrhaging support to the Green Party and some to the NDP. So I think that backs up your, your analysis with, you know, perhaps young people are turning against Justin Trudeau. And that really shouldn't be that surprising because a lot of them voted for Trudeau out of a sense of idealism. And the problem in politics with idealism is it eventually turns into disillusionment. Mm-hmm. Uh, because no politician could ever live up to the kind of expectations that were around Justin Trudeau when he became prime minister in 2015. And, you know, he, was, he was raised up by his friends and media as some kind of demigod that was going to change Canada forever, is going to be sunny ways. Well, that was never going to happen, right? You know, eventually he was going to collide with reality and, 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 and come down a little bit. And for a lot of people who thought, hey, this guy's different, you know what? He isn't. He's just like all the other guys. So I think, you know, there, when that happens, you have two options. You can either stay home and not vote, or you can find somebody else. Interesting and stuff. I think, yeah, and I think both those, problems are, both those um, options are a problem for Trudeau. Thank you for this. Great to have you on the program. We'll talk lots more before the election rolls around. 
sounds good, Sterling. Thanks for having me on your show. Jerry Nichols from the Hill Times joining us from uh, Toronto area. So nice to be with you this afternoon. Sterling Fox sitting in for Simi Sarah. Joined on the line by Global News reporter Aaron MacArthur, who has been spending his lunch hour uh, at TransLink's press conference as they talk numbers. Quite a lot of numbers. Um, dollars exceeding $3 billion, with only about half that in the kitty. <laughs> with Aaron, good afternoon. That was uh, Did they at least feed you during the press conference? over the lunch hour. No, sadly, nobody feeds reporters anymore, <laughs> Sterling. So let's talk about those numbers because there, there, there's actually quite a lot. Terry uh, uh, has updated us a little bit because there, we're talking about three staging scenarios uh, uh, and, and all of this based on SkyTrain, of course, going all the way out to Langley. That's the top of the wish list. And now we know how much it's going to cost, Right. We know how much it's going to cost if they start right away, Sterling. But, you know, all of these costs keep going up the longer the mayors in the region delay. Sure. But, if, but SkyTrain from King George all the way out to Langley is in the neighborhood of $3.12 billion. Now, that's up from the estimates that uh, they had given us originally, you know, in the $2.9 billion range. Mm-hmm. But $3 billion plus to get it all the way to Langley, 16 kilometers. Now, that's not money that, that TransLink has at the moment. They only have $1.6 billion from all three levels of government to build SkyTrain out to Langley. Mm-hmm. So there are a couple of different scenarios that they're proposing to bring to the mayors next week. A seven-kilometer-long track that would end up at 166th Street, Fleetwood. Uh, four stations there, 25 vehicles on service, and that cost is $1.63 billion. Now, the other option they have on the table here is to build it, say, a little farther down the road, so almost to the Langley border, uh, 11 kilometers of track, and, and that would be $2.2 billion. But again, all of these things are going to have to go back to governments and say, we want more money. There just isn't any right now. Did they talk at all, Aaron? Because we know about the shortfall. We knew that they had 1.6 allocated for this project. And uh, now that we know the total cost, uh, we, and we obviously can do the math and know the difference. Was there any indication at today's press conference where that basically uh, another 1.6 is going to come from? Well, the original plan is it was in three phases anyway. The, the mayor's 10-year transit vision was over 10 years and and the extra money even with the lrt that was proposed in surrey originally there was always going to be extra money in the in the third phase of that plan to expand and extend the tracks so a lot of the funding for the extra money is coming down the road okay but all of that is up in the air of course right there's a federal election in the fall change of government could mean change of priorities mm-hmm. uh, and and who knows what happens with in in the municipal scene so uh, at the moment I think they're comfortable saying we have $1.6 billion. This is as far as we'd like to build it. Now it's up to the mayors to make a decision. Interesting. Now, Aaron, the other X factor in all of this is, of course, the option that they've moved away from, the light rail rapid transit, the surface rail stuff. That basically, as I understand it, would cost about the money they already have to push right through to the uh, ultimate end destination in Langley. So the question is, uh, and we know Doug McCallum and his party, eroding though it may be, was elected on the SkyTrain option only. Is there any possibility the uh, surface rail link could be returned as an option or is it gone for good? It seems that that is fading into the distant past in terms of transit use in the region. 
the even along the original route of the LRT down 104th Avenue and then King George Boulevard, even that is is going to cost too much money. Mm-hmm. In addition to the SkyTrain, they want to build down the Fraser Highway. So now they're talking about rapid bus service down the King George Highway and 104th, or possibly um, BRT bus rapid transit with elevated stations and separated traffic controls. But again, even that costs too much money. Doug McCallum had talked about after the election that he he thought the SkyTrain could be built at grade for considerably less money. Right. He said something along the lines of $1.6 billion should be enough to build it at grade all the way to Langley. We could work 24 hours a day to make that happen. TransLink put cold water on that theory right away, saying the environmental concerns in green timber, the environmental concerns along the Serpentine Valley and, and along the agricultural land reserve around 176. Surface-level SkyTrain is not a possibility. It will have to be elevated the whole way. Right. And that brings the cost up and way out of the budget of what TransLink has to spend at the moment. Interesting stuff. So uh, as the press conference wraps and they've given you all of the options, did anyone at one point or at all say, look, we've got $1.6 billion. That's what it would cost to push the thing through to Fleetwood. So that's where we're going to go. And when we get there, we'll worry about the rest. Or is that simply not doable? No, that if, if if you read the read between the lines of what Kevin Desmond is saying, that's the proposal they're putting on the table. But in the end, it's up to the mayor's council to make that decision. The mayors meet next uh, next week. This proposal will be sent to the mayor's council. If the mayors agree to this, then the next stage is a business plan and more public consultation. The plan, if it goes ahead as quickly as the time frame that Translink is proposing, we could have transit skytrain transit to fleetwood by 2025 but there are a lot of ifs in that state interesting stuff aaron uh, we appreciate your taking the time after still not having had lunch to do this thing on the radio with us now go get a burger will do <laughs> there's aaron MacArthur, global news reporter joining us from the aftermath of the translink con- uh, press conference uh, noon hour today in the meantime space junk is a big problem and there is this will surprise you a lot of it floating around up there so why does it need to be cleaned up and how does one even go about doing that scott sutherland is with us uh, Scott is a meteorologist and science writer for the Weather Network who spends a lot of time on this topic. Scott, thanks for joining us. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. Uh, So talk to us about, before we get to space junk, which is why we're here to talk to you about uh, today, uh, let's get a moment of your thoughts on this rather marked day, this 50th anniversary of the moon landing. Significance 50 years later, Scott. Uh, 50 years later, I mean, it has a lot of significance just for the fact that we did it. I mean, the fact that we actually have had people stand on the surface of another planetary body in our solar system is in itself amazing. I mean, the fact that we were able to accomplish that with the technology we had at the time, which was seemed like it was sending people in a tin can compared to what we use these days. Uh, but, I mean, the technology we got from it was uh, it still reaches to these, this day um the only thing is that when we look at w- how we're traveling in space now we've kind of regressed back because we haven't gone anywhere past low earth orbit since then but still um it's something that we can still look to to say hey we've been there we've done that and we have to go back now, and that's what we're looking to do in the future. Exactly. It's the inspiration factor yeah. for 50 years. It really has been a factor, too, hasn't it, Scott? 
Uh, I mean, it amazed people. It's inspired so many people, like Chris Hadfield himself, uh, Canadian commander of the space station. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he was inspired by Apollo 11, uh, having watched it, and that he drew him to be an astronaut himself. Uh, Bill Nye, as well, did the same thing. He worked for NASA with the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, putting robots on Mars. And it was all based on his watching of the the Apollo 11 mission at the time. Um, But yeah, the technology that we've gotten from it, uh, and that the advancements in the space program, and that we've stuck with the space program, and gotten advancements like the cell phones that we use every day now yeah wouldn't be around if it wasn't for the space program interesting stuff now apollo 11 yeah. and subsequent visitors to the moon did leave behind well shall we say bits of space junk and this is something you've written extensively about scott let's talk a little yeah. bit about the amount of junk human created debris now floating about in outer space how much is there oh uh sterling there is a lot a lot of stuff up there <laughs> Um, as of now, the estimates of the individual number of objects, uh, this is anywhere from one millimeter up to satellite size, is over 120 million objects. And these are, but, all, these are all human-derived objects, too, correct? Yes. These are all bits of junk, bits of, of, of debris that have broken off of rockets, satellites, they are, sometimes they are full rockets themselves that sure. are still floating up there from when they launched. Satellites that have been uh, decommissioned or damaged so that they're, they're not working anymore. Uh, yeah, and, and I mean, that, like I said, that's anywhere larger than one millimeter. Now, when you get up larger, the number drops. So anything above 10 centimeters, like about the size of a softball, you've got about 34,000 objects. Um, and there's only about 2,000 operational satellites. So you can see exactly how much of that 34,000 is actually junk just floating up there from... Well, some of them are weird objects like a lost wrench or a, right, sure, a yeah. tool bag that floated away during a, during a, a, space a, a spacewalk. Yeah. But, um, there, yes, there is a lot of stuff up there, and uh, we, don't, we can't actually track all of it. We can track maybe... Mm, 20, 22,000 objects, I think, was the last estimate or the last uh, record that they had. That, that's the objects we know of, that we, can, we know where they are, uh, they, we can detect them and tell s- satellites and the space station to move to avoid them if necessary. But that's 22,000 out of 120. Million. Exactly. Now, Scott, you just touched on something, though, that Hollywood has had much to do with this in our imaginations, the creating yeah. p- movie plots wherein someone aboard some kind of space vessel is threatened by uh, either a, a comet or, or some man-made object. How dangerous, to follow on that Hollywood theme, how dangerous to a, a space station like the ISS are these bits of human debris floating around out there? Uh, well, um, they, they say that the, the greatest risk to all the space missions up there, especially the ISS, are, are any objects that are maybe between 1 centimeter and 10 centimeters. The little guys. In size. Yeah, because we don't know where they are, yeah. and they're just randomly flying around Earth at, um, oh, anywhere like around 30,000 kilometers an hour. And if a if a if a something the size of a softball 
or say that wrench that was lost mm-hmm. uh, during one of the uh, the spacewalks hits the space station going at 30,000 kilometers per hour, it's going to do a lot of damage. And the space station is designed to mitigate those impacts with the, the design of the skin of the station and so forth. Sure. But, um, but Commander Hadfield himself, uh, about halfway or so into his mission, spotted a hole in one of the solar panels of the ISS. And it was probably about a bullet-sized object, and that, it could have been a meteoroid just flying past Earth, and it just happened to you know, randomly strike the space station. But mm-hmm. it's very much likely that it could easily have been a piece of space debris that we put there that smacked into the solar panel and put this noticeable hole in it. Interesting stuff. Now, here's the easy question for me to ask. I suspect the response will be much more difficult. How do you clean this stuff up, Scott? A hundred million little bits of of, of uh, debris and junk flying around there. Some of them much larger. How does how do we humanity go about beginning even to clean that mess up? Uh, well, the first thing is knowing about them and that knowing those 20,000 objects uh you know minus the 2,000 that 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 are actually functional satellites that we want to stay up there um uh, we have to know where they are very first of all and and so getting better and better tracking systems uh in place to to tell where these things are so that we can you know actually spy them and know that where uh where to aim whatever methods we have of removal right but even but only now we're getting into so they've been tracking them all along i should say mm-hmm. but now we're getting into actual methods of removal active removal because usually we just wait for it to just strike the top of the atmosphere and burn up and so forth and we track it until it does that but now it's we want to send stuff up to start actively cleaning these things out of orbit. And so some are just, it's a rocket that has still some propellant on board, and so they activate it and make it thrust down towards the atmosphere and burn up. Uh, that's probably the easiest of the methods to do it. Um, but now we're looking at methods like uh, laser removal. And this isn't like um, uh, Moonraker, where, <laughs> where you send up a shuttle that's right. with, with, a laser, with a laser cannon on the front. I remember this, that, yep. Yeah, uh, and uh, that was a great scene of the movie, mm-hmm. but <laughs> a little a little bit too far beyond what we're really thinking of here. But right. say um, if you put a tracking station in Australia, in the middle of the the, the the desert there, and you hook up a laser to it, you can track these objects, and as they fly over the 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 continent, they can fire the laser at the object, and they're they're firing at it in the in the and a head-on collision. So you're firing, it's coming towards you and you're firing at it as it's doing so. And the light pressure from the laser will slow the object down. And it will, it will take several passes. But as that object passes around Earth, taking, oh, about 90 minutes to, uh, to an hour to do so, they keep hitting it every time they see it. They track it and, and hit that object with the laser. And it'll eventually slow down and slow down and slow down until it drops into the atmosphere, and then it'll burn up. Interesting. I've got, and, to, I, yeah, I've got to leave it there because in the interest of time, I'm fresh out of it. But you know, that right. as, as you describe this to us, it sounds very primitive, but it also sounds like the conversation we had at the beginning of this chat because 50 years ago, when we landed on the moon, you said yourself, the equipment, the gear we used 
by today's standards, incredibly primitive. So here we are 50 years later repeating the process again, Scott, this time with a, a, a focus and a purpose uh, that is going to, I think, inspire some real solutions. Thank you for this today. Great to speak to you. Uh, enjoy the weekend. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yep, thanks you, um, uh, Sterling, and uh, yeah, you enjoy the weekend too. Scott Sutherland is a meteorologist and science writer with the Weather Network.